When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, good morning. Um, my name is Wendy Ponzio. I live in um, a small town outside of Charlottesville, Virginia. I started off with dogs, I think, chimney, when I was old enough to walk. My mom was against having dogs in the house. My dad came over from Europe after the Second World War. He um, was brought up on a horse ranch in Poland, and they had Great Danes, and uh, he wanted to have big dogs, and Mom said no, and um, I have allergies, and she was afraid I would be ill all the time, so um, there was a no in our house until we had a burglary when I was about 10 or 11 years old, came home and found it, and... um, I was alone in the house, called my dad, he came home from work, and after that, the following week, we went looking for a dog. Um, First thing we found at the pound was a Great Dane, but um, my dad said, Mom will kill us, and I said, but Dad, we can't leave it here. Mm. Well, we unfortunately had to leave the big dog, even though I was all for it, Um, but we ended up, first dog was a Weimarana, my dentist happened to be breeding them. So we ended up with my first Weimarana. Um, she wasn't much of a watchdog, but she was a sweetheart. And um, fast forward a couple of years, um, I got married early, 17 years old. It was during the Vietnam War. Um, couldn't live without the, the future husband. We packed up and moved across the world to Hawaii. And that's where I... Um, fell in love with German Shepherds. Now, my dad um, also loved German Shepherds, but um, I really got into the breed out in Hawaii, uh, found my first white German Shepherd there, Mm -hmm. and um, another German Shepherd out there, and stayed out there with um, my Shepherds, shipped one home, and that was my, GSDs were my life from that period on from the early 70s. In the early 80s, I really got interested in Shepherds, met a great breeder in Massachusetts, and went to some dog shows with her, got my next three Shepherds over a period of 10 years from her. I did some tracking and some therapy work with my Shepherds, met a nice lady friend of mine. We did a lot of therapy work with a a group called Helping Hounds out of Massachusetts, and in 1997, I met my future husband, and we decided to go to the World Dog Show in Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. And while we were there, uh, I was at the course, German Shepherd Ring, and uh, he came over and said, you have to meet this dog. It's a beautiful big white dog called a a Pyrenean Mastiff, and you should see him. He's fabulous. Went across and met two nice ladies from Finland that barely spoke English, and uh, met this dog named Adolfo. He was a big, big 
white, beautiful dog, a guardian breed, uh, never heard of it before, rare breed in this country because there wasn't any here. Come to find out, one female came into this country in 1996, and no other dog was here since then. Um, learned about the dog from this lady. It's a guardian breed. They can guard sheep and uh, flocks in the mountains and protect the shepherd from bears and wolves in the mountains from any predators, but also great family dogs. Uh, they can do both. Very versatile. I said, okay. And he said, we have to have one. And I said, okay. Okay. <laughs> so she said, well, uh, we don't sell to Americans, but if you are really interested, and I guess he must have talked to her for quite a time before he came to me, if you want a puppy, you have to come to Finland. And I said, Finland? And he said, I'll talk to my wife, we'll, we'll go. We talked about it. I said, if you really want a puppy, you're going to go to Finland. I've got 12 dogs at home. You have to just go to Finland. Because we were rescuing Belgian sheepdogs at the time, and we had several at home, and we also had some St. Bernard's and other rescues, so I couldn't travel. He flew to Finland. Let's see, this was in March. She had puppies, and she said, I will let you know when you can come. He went to Finland at the end of June when she told him that she had chosen two males out of her litter. He should choose. He went to Finland, and he chose my Pancho. Mm -hmm. Pancho came to America the end of June. He was 12 weeks old. Logan Airport, I'll never forget the day. Uh, international Terminal, he didn't speak a lick of English. She told me how to address him in Finnish. And by the way, I train in Finnish now. Huh. Um, he comes down in his little... Paul was dealing with uh, the paperwork and in the little ramp down in the international terminal little poncho at about oh let's see 12 weeks old he was close to 50 pounds oh, <laughs> wow. his, his little legs come running down the little ramp there and i called him in finnish and he just came thump, 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 thump down the ramp i remember this like it was yesterday and he came thumping into me because i was kneeling on the floor and he just into my chest and into my heart and that was the end of my world <laughs> as I knew it. Wow. It was like magic. And as much as I loved my German Shepherds, that was the day and, and in June of 1997 that my world changed completely and Perennium Aftis from then on were my breed. The, uh, the German Shepherd is a excellent all-around dog if you want an excellent dog to work your as a herding dog mm -hmm. and if you've got the lines that they breed for working uh, they don't use them anymore much for herding sheep and so on like they used to way back in the day for shepherds um, yeah they use them for protection mostly now but shepherds are so smart i have one now uh ziva she's three and a half she can she comes from out of half German, half American line. I, I like that because she's not as angulated now as the Americans have ruined the American German Shepherd line, mm -hmm. as, is my opinion. 
the insulation is awful. They, they're doing it strictly for the show ring, and they're just about running them on their knees, and I think it's awful what they've done to the shepherd, my opinion. But um, I like a nice square dog that can actually do something and work and work and not hurt themselves. She, um, my Ziva has a very strong prey drive, and that's what I like in a shepherd. My Ziva is smart. They're good all-around dogs. She's just great. The Peridian Mastiff, they are a guardian dog. They can guard your flock. They can guard your family. They can guard your farm. They can do therapy work. They are kind. They are gentle. They are formidable. They can sleep in the corner of your house facing any doorway, mind you, because even though they're sleeping, they know exactly what's going on in your house. Mm -hmm. They only bark and alert when necessary. They're not overly barking and, uh, and loud like my shepherd. Mm -hmm. um, they are affectionate and gentle, but they can be as aggressive and formidable as any dog that I know, any breed. And I have traveled the world with my husband and met all kinds of guardian breeds, all kinds of Mastiff breeds, and um, Anatolian Shepherds and Neapolitan Mastiffs and Condi Corsos and Tosas and those. And the magical thing component, I think, of the Pyrenean Mastiff is their diversity because they can switch it from there's a threat there, there's a bear, a wolf, fox, coyote, whatever, whatever your predator load is in your area, for your farm, for your ranch. Because they can be LGD, livestock guardian dog, if they're brought up that way. They can be that and more and protect it in pairs. Or they can just be in your home, cuddling your kids, be in your vehicle, go on rides with you, go hiking, go camping, and be super affectionate and go to hospitals and nursing homes and be the therapy dog. Mostly though, they, they like to be in big, big yards and be with the family not so much walking in a neighborhood, but um, free to, to be in the yard and be in their territory, but be in a loving home. And at least for me, the puppies that I breed, I find that for me, I like to have them be in homes where they spend most of their time with the family. And uh, they out in the yard, and yes, they're playing, and yes, they're running and being strong and in the fresh air. And I know that they will protect them if there's um, someone coming to the door, someone coming on the property that shouldn't be there, or if they're traveling with the family, no one's going to hurt that family. Mm -hmm. But never be fooled how sweet they can be, because sometimes, not all of them have this way, but sometimes you get them in your vehicle and they do nothing, the same will lay there and, and be fine. People can walk by and be fine. And then other times I've had others in my vehicle that you have to be parking your vehicle away in, say, Walmart 
lot because you better be 50 feet away from my vehicle because that dog will just, you, this is my vehicle, you better, you need to walk 50 feet away. Mm -hmm. They can be very quiet and know that they're always on alert. Shepherds, they speak their mind constantly. They don't stay quiet. They are alert all the time and they let you know. They let you know all the time. Pretty and Mastiff, they will alert you with their bark, and then they get very quiet. Because the bark tells, of course, the predator, I'm here, stay away from my property, I don't want you here. Mm-hmm. However, if the predator continues to approach, the Pretty and Mastiff well, years ago, when we were thinking about getting the printing massive, a very, very old colleague who's been in the business a long time said, I want you to know the printing and massive has a nickname called the silent killer. And we said, really? They will bark and bark to tell the predator, stay away. If the predator or the threat, whatever, man or beast, continues to approach and the barking does not deter the Pernian Mastiff will get very quiet and continue to watch the predator or the threat if they're stupid enough to continue to come along and they get very quiet if they get quiet and the threat is still coming and you know it's still there and you can see it or whatever that's when the dog gets the most dangerous. Because mm-hmm. then they go from alerting you, hey, hey, come over here, something's wrong, and always trust your dog. You never shut the PM up. Mm-hmm. It's not, they don't bark for no reason, and it's not an annoyance thing. Like my shepherd, sometimes it's like, quiet, go to bed. The PM will only go off most, most times. I would say 90% of the time the dog goes off for a reason. You go find out why. And then, if it, you can see a visual and the dog gets quiet and the visual is still coming, the quiet PM is at its most dangerous because if the threat continues and you see it and you don't, the person doesn't do something about it, which they should, because you don't want to have an injured dog, you don't want to fight, you don't want to draw blood, do not want an injury. That dog will kill whatever it's going on. Mm-hmm. It's in their blood. They're hardwired that way. They're going to protect the flock, the family. That's their job. And they will do it to the best of their ability, and they will die trying. And then, after it's done, and most of the time they win, unless it's against man and guns, they will just finish it, go back to what they're doing, get up on the porch and say, I'm done. Hmm. They are long hair masters, mm-hmm. but they are just a fabulous companion because you can take them places because they're not yappers. Mm-hmm. Um, as long as you've got a fence job, they can go out and play in, so to speak, because they do need to have a yard and, and physical exercise. A lot of books out there, uh, people are saying, oh, I understand they don't need as much exercise as it's reading as a great Pyrenees, and I happen to have a great peer. 
uh, and that's not so. Now, the great peer tends to have um, more wanderlust from what I've experienced. They call it the great disappear. You can't seem to give them enough acreage to wander. Um, the Perinian Mastiff likes to be at home with the family, but they need to have room. Walking the neighborhood isn't enough for them. They need to have room to run in their own space, in their yard. Love camping, they love hiking, all the other stuff. But they like also to be in their own yard, to be out there and run their own perimeter and say, I'm here, stay away. Mm-hmm. And by the way, I'm going to go in and hug with my mom and dad and I'm going to hang out with them. <laughs> right, right. That's the magic of this breed. They just, they're so versatile and they're big. And um, people, when we, we have a walking mall here in Charlottesville. It's kind of like a, it's the old historical area and they've closed it off to traffic and you can walk down there and they have shops and restaurants and so on and so on. And so we go down there frequently, my husband and I, and take dogs to socialize and lots of people have dogs down there too and it's close to the University of Virginia, so on and so on. Well, sometimes it takes us just to take a walk around should take you no more than maybe 20 minutes just to make the lap around and down the bottom and go around. Sometimes it takes us two hours because everyone, is that a St. Bernard? Is that, is that a brief mountain dog? And then they talk about it and they want to ask questions and people have their kids come up, strangers, and they you know, put the dog in a sit. We explain. And what I like the best is we get a chance to educate the public, A, about the breed, B, it teaches the dogs behavior and good manners, and it teaches the children because, well, more the parents, ask first before you touch the dog. Mm. And it teaches the parents to teach the children. And everybody is just so fascinated about the breed, which is nice because it's a rare breed in this country. Mm -hmm. And we have a breed group here called PMUSA, and um, I don't always agree with my other colleagues about breeding and so on, but uh, we are DNA testing through Embark, and we are uh, making sure we're trying to make a better puppy each and every time we breed. We're taking the DNA testing from certain bitches and certain dogs, and we're trying to pick the right pairing to make sure that uh, we're making a better, healthier dog each time because it is a rare breed. Um, they were almost extinct. Uh, after the Second World War, and uh, the breed is just being resurrected since the early 70s. So we are trying to make a better breed because the gene pool is so small. Mm-hmm. The breed itself, for for everyone's needs, whether it's the husband works nights or he's away during the day and they either live in the city or out in the suburbs where the family's home and he works late nights and uh, doesn't get home until 10, 11, 12 o'clock and it's just an you know, eerie feeling. Yep. And they want a guardian dog. The PM is a Malafia dog. Basically, it is structurally a large boned dog. Mm-hmm. It is, if you stripped off all the fur, structurally, it's higher in the back and a little lower in the front, large jaw, uh, bigger chest. And 
it was in the area from Samaria and Syria to Spain by the Phoenicians, I want to say about 3,000 years ago, way, way, way back. They did it because um, then they had lots of flocks and they had lots of predators, so they brought this big livestock guardian breed with them. Uh, in that region, they had the Korean Mastiff, the Spanish Mastiff, and uh, of course the Great Pyrenees in that general area. And during the Middle Ages, when um, Spain was split from um, the, the Kingdom of Castile and Aragon, they, uh, they also split the breeds. So the Spanish Mastiff was developed to protect the sheep um, over long distances. And um, in the Aragon region, the, uh, the, mount, the Pyrenean Mountains had very rugged, long-haired livestock protectors. And they had sheep and lots of wolves and things in that area, and they had to develop a, a more hardy dog because it was in the mountains. And they would have a migration of bears and wolves that infested the mountains at that time. So they, um, that was during, I want to say, the 18th century. I'm trying to think. 1659, yes. The King of Spain signed a decree splitting the ownership of the mountains of the, of the, the Pyrenean Mountains between France and Spain. The French took the mountain dog, the Pyrenean mountain dog, with them, and they honed it more finely tuned, had a longer coat, finer bones, and made it the Great Pyrenees that we know today. Mm -hmm. The other side of the mountain in Spain they kept the Pyrenean Mastiff um, to the south, more of a livestock guardian, uh, massive, primitive-looking dog. So that's why when you look at most Great Pyrenees, they have typically a more refined look mm -hmm. these days. Um, and the Pyrenean Mastiff has a bigger head, typically larger bone, bigger chest most of the time. Uh, that's the differentiation when they did the breedings back in the day. Um, that's the only difference. They both are guardian dogs. They both were livestock guardians back in that day. But the PM can be, tra can be tracked back as, as long ago as 3,000 years ago, and then they made the change in 1659. Now, the big change came in the 30s and 40s when the wolves and the bears disappeared from the Pernian Mountains, and everybody relied on the railway to transport their sheep and their livestock during the, the, um, the Spanish Civil War mm -hmm. that was followed by the Second World War, and there was such a scarcity of food that they almost lost the entire population of mastiffs 
um, out of the Aragon region in Spain. Um, it was just too expensive to feed the dogs and have the dogs, and they were just trying to feed themselves. So the dogs had to go, well, they took backseat to living. Mm -hmm. And so they just almost became extinct, which is understandable, but unfortunate. So after many years, probably 25, 30 years, the resurgence of uh, the wolves and so on came back to the Aragon region. And in the early 70s, the dogs needed to, they had to have some dogs come back to the Aragon region to protect the flocks now because the wolves were back. And um, they now had to get some sort of protection. In my group, was a fellow named Raphael and his friend Daniel, they live in Spain, and his name is Rafael Malo Acrua. He and his friend said, we've got to do something about this. We have to protect our livestock. They started going out into the mountains to find dogs that looked like the former Pyrenean Mastiff. And they took them off the farms and said, that's close to the one that we remember and this is that one, and this is that one. And they started slowly bringing the breed back. And now, fast forward to now, we now have the Pony Mastiff back in the world, thanks to them, because they, it was almost gone completely. Now, they found, well, approximately, I guess, 75 to 100 dogs, and they started breeding them, and they took the closest 30 or 35 or so of them that they could that they felt was they didn't do DNA testing back then but they felt that a third of them were about as close as they felt were the closest to the um, original standard and uh, size strong build graceful uh, movement most importantly they wanted a non-aggressive good temperament dog that um, showed diversity. Mm -hmm. Go out in the field, go out in the flock, take care of the job as a livestock guardian, and also be able to be with the family because they don't want an aggressive dog. Perennial Mastiffs should never be aggressive. They should be attentive. They should be forced to be reckoned with. It, but they have to stay noble. They have to be still a family dog. If you have an aggressive Pyrenean Mastiff, you have brought it up wrong. Mm -hmm. The breeder is responsible for the first, typically, 10 to 12 weeks. Those are the formidable, the first four weeks to six weeks. If the dog ends up aggressive, then there's something wrong from the very beginning. And a Pyrenean Mastiff should never be aggressive. So they took the first... 30 or so after they collected 100 specimens and they said, okay, this is what we have to work with. And they finally tuned as much as they could over the years. And this is what we have today. Um, because it's still a rare breed, it's like having the United States of America as the average breeding pool of, say, German Shepherds or Beagles or... Uh, Labradors and the Pyrenean Mastiff gene pool right now in the world is like 
a loaf of bread. Mm-hmm. Because right now, probably throughout Europe and Russia and Scandinavia and Japan, Mexico, U.S., Canada, probably is only like four to 6,000 perennial mastiffs worldwide. Mm-hmm. So, as I said, if you, if you compare the size of the United States and the loaf of bread, that's how small the gene pool is, and that's why we have to be very careful when we consider pairing up who we breed to because we want to make a better dog. We don't want to have incidences of you know, hip dysplasia or um, eye issues or things like that, patella issues, heart issues. We just try to make a clean, better dog because in order for the breed to succeed and to stay viable, healthy, and healthy is just what we want, mm-hmm. we have to be careful. And um, thanks to Rafa and Daniel and some of those dedicated people in the 70s and the 80s and up to now, of course, we're all trying. We um, we owe them a debt of gratitude for bringing back this great breed and to be careful. Temperament is just also crucial. You You can do all the right things genetically, but it's the breeder first that starts out with handling the dogs properly. Because from zero, as I mentioned, zero to six weeks, you only have the first six weeks, from t- four to six weeks. The breeder is responsible for the temperament and the handling and the care. Once you cross that, once you ring that bell, you can't unring it. Mm-hmm. I don't think breeders sometimes here in the U.S. understand that. And uh, I got my start in the, you know, Pancho was the second PM here in America. And I, I consider myself more of a European breeder than a U.S. breeder mm-hmm. because we traveled the world, my husband and I, and learned from all the European breeders back in the day. We went to world dog shows and specialty shows and European shows. And we, we flew to Spain and Italy and Finland and Austria. And we met lots of people and we asked lots of questions and we didn't know. Uh, I wanted to learn so much before I started breeding because how do you get to be doing what you do unless you talk to people that have been doing it for 20, 30, 40 years? Mm-hmm. And I didn't, I wasn't going to presuppose that I could just say, hey, I'm going to put two dogs together and this is what I'm going to come up with. I wanted to be guided by the people that were doing it and knew what they're doing. They, they started it in Spain. They should know. I'm just a student, and I learn things new every day. I don't know everything. I wouldn't even suppose to know everything. I still call my, I'm still friendly with the lady who sold me Poncho, and then the next year, I went back to Finland to her strawberry farm, and I bought three more. So I, I still... Uh, I'm on the I'm on messenger with her every weekend asking her questions about my puppies and things. So I learn everything all the time. So I, that's why I consider myself more of a European breeder because I do it kind of the old-fashioned way with the exception of the Embark DNA and things like that. Sometimes slow and steady wins the race. Mm-hmm. The um, original registry, well, the first registry we should talk about is the FCR. It's originally from Spain. Um, 
the the use of the dog is is quoted by the by the FBI is to guard and defend and uh, against beasts of prey and bears and wolves and uh, estates people. Uh, the classification in FCI is a group two, and it's a Malassi of breed, in other words, big mountain-type dog. And um, as quoted, I'll quote you exactly from the standard, it's a very large dog, above average size, and of medium proportion. In other words, it's not big all over. It has a very large head and chest. The rest of it is harmonious, emphatically strong and muscular, has a firm bone structure, the coat not exaggerated in length, but it will be long. And in spite of its size, it must not give the impression of being heavy or sluggish. And that's a quote from the standard. Mm -hmm. So in other words, The coat's going to be long. It's going to have a big chest, large head. It's going to be of medium proportion, however, in the sense that the entire dog is not going to be heavy and sluggish. The dog, because it's going to defend its property, has to be agile and has to be quick. Not going to be quick like a Malinois or a German Shepherd. But it has to be light, light enough on its feet to move through the pasture and take care of any predator from one end to the other. Why most of us keep our PMs on the lighter side of their weight, and I'll get to the weight in a minute. But um, typically, if they're even if they're not working dogs, I prefer to keep my dogs on the lighter side because they're because they're big, their hips and their elbows. Uh, you want to keep them on the lighter side so they can be more agile and because you just don't want to put too much weight on the bone anyway. Mm-hmm. And it says here, the typical temperament and behavior should be friendly towards humans. They should be calm and noble, and they are very intelligent. But they have to be courageous, and they have to be, it says, proud towards strangers from whom they never back away. And I'll give you an example of that. My males throughout the years, from my experience, have been always more outwardly friendly when I've given the okay that people are coming onto the property and into my home. My females, however, when I've given the okay that people are coming onto the property or into my home, have been more reserved. Mm -hmm. My males kind of bounce out there and go, hi, how are you? Come on in, have a beer. (laughs) (laughs) My females have walked out slowly, for instance, down my walkway towards the driveway when people are getting out of their vehicles. My males will bounce out there and they'll come out and I'll, my visitors already are aware that the dogs are going to come out and do the meet and greet because I prefer them to meet and greet outside. The males will come out and bounce, hi, how are you? Come on in. My females will walk out behind the males very slowly, usually barking, with maybe a low growl, and my visitors are already aware of that. And my females will walk up to them, 
and circle around, sometimes with a low growl, but not a growl that would be aggressive, just like, who are you and why are you here? Mm -hmm. And then they'll sniff and then they'll walk away consistently over almost 25 years in the business. They just are different. The boys, they just seem happy to see people. And they're all brought up the same way. Some of them I have imported from Spain and from Finland at various ages, 9, 10, 12 weeks old. And some of them I have put on the ground here myself as my own litter. And it just is the same. Now, the other registry is called AKC, as everyone knows, but under AKC, we have not been recognized yet as a breed. We're working towards that as the club that I belong to. We have to have a certain number of dogs shown and, and before we can be recognized, but we can show under AKC under the category F, like in Frank, SS, like in Sam Sam. So any open show that has the category FSS, we can show under. Mm-hmm. So um, we're hopefully going to be recognized in the next couple of years as a breed. Uh, we're, we have a lot of new members, and they have, they've been shipping in a lot of dogs from Europe, and we have a lot of, a lot of new bloodlines. And um, through the diversity of bloodlines, we can hopefully have some great new puppies. And there's a lot of dog shows coming up in West Virginia, actually in June, and here in Virginia over the summer. And uh, there's going to be a lot of good things happening. And we're hopefully going to be recognized by the AKC and get out of temporary status and into permanent status. Mm -hmm. The size of the dogs, Mm -hmm. the males, according to the standard here, they prefer that the boys be bigger than the standard, but the minimum would be uh, 30 inches at the withers. But they really prefer taller, so they're talking 31, 32 inches would be kind of the minimum the judge would prefer to see. And the weight for the boys would be 160 to 190 pounds or larger. Now, I myself, that's the average of what my boys typically are. They're about 32 inches at the shoulder or taller and between 160 and 190. We typically don't keep them that heavy, again, because of the pressure on the bones and things. As an example, I told you my Sam is the tallest PM I've ever had. He's 34 at the shoulder and he's 174 for weight. He could carry more weight. I just don't want him to. My typical boys have been around 32 inches at the shoulder and running about 175. Ladies in the family can be between 28 and 30 inches at the shoulder for the standard, but they, the judging, they prefer them taller, more to the upper end. And the girls should weigh in between 130 and 150. Can they be heavier? Sure. Uh, in Europe, I don't know what the girls tend to have been to a show in a while, but my girls tend to be about 28 to 29 inches at the shoulder. And I try to keep my girls 
if they're taller, I keep them around, well, they, they seem to fall into about 140, 142. But if they're on the shorter side of 28, 28 and a half inches, I try to keep them in the low 130s. Mm -hmm. I just feel it's healthier for them. And plus, they with 35 open acres of pasture, they do run the fence line. We have some deer, and so they amuse themselves by running the deer. And we have some fox, and we have a few coyotes that come by every now and then. And so uh, they do do the guardian thing. And so they're running probably six or seven hours a day, not consistently, but throughout the day. So they are, they do stay in very good shape. So it just seems that they fall into, the girls fall into about the 130 to 135 range. And uh, right now Sam's the only boy adult male here so he he's staying about 174 he seems to be comfortable with that and uh what we feed is a very nice quality protein food uh dry kibble and then we throw on some chicken or some cheese and stuff just to give it some flavor but basically it's a kibble we've been feeding for years and i love it it's, it's an excellent quality it comes it comes out of michigan and it's, it's a, a nice product called Wysong, W-Y-S-O-N-G, and um, it's just, um, the fellow started it, you know, back in the 70s, and it's just a great, 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 great product. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I fed my puppies on that. When they were weaning, I fed them on adult formula right away, and we just crushed it and added yogurt. But um, I don't like puppies that start with too high a protein for a giant breed. I feel they grow too fast and there's too much of a chance of pinnitinitis and so on when the, the marrow of the bone and the bone grows too fast and the marrow doesn't fill in quite as quickly and then you have problems with pain and, and bone issues. So I think that slow and steady is good for giant breeds, for puppies, my own opinion. Mm -hmm. And so um, I started them out with the adult original formula on the Y-Song as I did with my other litter. And puppies just seem to grow, in my opinion, seem to grow evenly and slowly because they're going to be big anyway. And I haven't so far, not good, had any issues with their bones growing definitely faster than the marrow filling in and no one's limping and everybody seems to be good. So um, I think that's important for people to consider when they uh, have a giant breed puppy and breeding giant breeds is to just not... Oh my gosh, the, the, the more, you know, protein, the better and the faster and so on. They have to just take a pause and, and realize that they don't have to grow super fast because they're going to anyway. Mm -hmm. So, and, and again, for the weight of the adult dogs, I think to be aware of the bones and the weight. Because uh, as they get bigger anyway and older, you don't want to have hip and joint issues um, to carry so much weight. Because they're going to be bigger and older soon enough. As much as we hope they don't, um, and when we run the DNA, it does show up now because Embark is so thorough with their testing, we are able to kind of have a crystal ball, if you will, on the possibilities of certain diseases. They have, they can alert us to predispositions in hip dysplasia, heart issues, patella issues, eye issues. So we do have, thank goodness, a way to look ahead and 
not breed to that puppy, not use that couple anymore, that kind of thing. So that's been a blessing. So we don't have to perpetuate any possible future issues in that line or in that puppy. And surprisingly, I am new to the DNA stuff because I never, back in 97, when I got Poncho and my other litters that went in 2006, I didn't do DNA because I didn't know from testing DNA that puppies have different stuff. So when I ran my DNA testing of the nine puppies from last November, I didn't realize everybody could be different. Who knew that somebody could just grab a piece of this and a piece of that? I, was, I thought it was pretty uniform. Fortunately, it was pretty uniform and everybody had the same good luck. But anyway, um, you can have heart issues. You can have an eye issue or or possibility of hip dysplasia. So that can run in anybody's line. It can run in any giant breed, hence giant breed. Um, so you do have to be careful when you go into a giant breed like a Pernian Mastiff, St. Bernard, um, any of those breeds that when you're purchasing one, you have to find out from the breeder, did they do any DNA testing and are there any health issues in the line? Particularly with a PM, there's always the chance that there will be uh, hip issues. We also do OFA certification, which I don't know if you're familiar with the um, Orthopedic Foundation. Mm -hmm. Yes. We, um, as a club, we request that, well, actually have to be done by our breeders, that you can do a preliminary at 18 months, but everyone's required as a breeder that the two years, which is what the OFA says, they will give you a a, um, a test and a certification at two years old. So all of our males and females have to be tested and certified at two years old. If you want to breed in our club, you have to get an OFA certification, which tests many things. But the minimum we require from our breeders our hips and elbows. Mm-hmm. So if you want to breed in our club, the hips and elbows have to be tested and they have to be of um, A, well, A, B, and C as a minimum would be uh, for, for having good or mild or um, I forget what the third term is that we use for ours as far as being um, dysplastic or, or, or solid hips and then good elbows would have to be a zero or a um, one, and if you're breeding, it's complicated, but if you're breeding, you always want to take, for instance, a bitch that's like solid and a meal that might be slightly off, and you, if you want to breed, you put them together, and you have puppies that when they come out, you do the DNA testing, and then you also, when they get to be 18 months old, or you can do a preliminary as early as four months old to see how their hips are. So before you sell your puppy, or if you sell your puppy, you have the buyer say, go to a veterinarian that's OFB certified, and you say, take an x-ray, and if the puppy has issues with the hips or whatever, please let me know, and the, the breeder and the buyer work out some sort of a deal. So that, yes, there is a possibility of dysplasia or 
some of the bigger breeds have um, droopy eye. It's called entropic or ectopic eye issues. That's a possibility in some of the PMs. Mm -hmm. So as a buyer, you just have to check with your breeder to find out if there's a possibility if any of those run in the lines. Right. And that's why we do the DNA testing. Mm -hmm. Fortunately for me, none of that applies in my lines, which I'm very grateful for because I got all my DNA testing done and nothing shows up in any of that. But it's always a good idea. When you have puppies, you can actually cause displeasure in your big puppies, even in some breeds that you don't realize. Yep. If you have hardwood floors mm -hmm. or tile floors, people don't realize when you have puppies, you have to be careful early, early on until their growth plate closes, how wild they are in your house, going up and down stairs or jumping up and down on your furniture or getting in and out of your vehicle can change the entire dynamic of your dog physically. Mm -hmm. And this is how. Until the growth plate of your dog closes, whether it's a German Shepherd Pony and Mastiff, or Pikachu. The more your dog jumps up and down, and everybody loves those little dogs that can, you know, the little Jack Russell Terriers and so on, jumping up, jumping down. Or the people that have the SUVs and they have their, you know, their their um, retrievers jump in and out when they're young, mm -hmm. instead of loading them in their side door and and taking them in the, the back seat area. The more pounding up and down and jumping off and on, you can hit their shoulders and their hips and their paws and their ankles. Everything changes until the growth plate closes. Everything is so fragile. Right. Now with PM puppies especially, slippery floors, you know how sometimes when a puppy runs and they display out their um, back legs and their front legs? Puppy, you see puppies all the time, they look like a frog. And they slide across the floor. Sometimes people take a video and think it's cute that the puppy's sliding across the floor and spinning around like a little top. Mm -hmm. Bad. Because you've got shoulders and you've got hips that are going in non-normal directions. And people don't realize that they can cause their own dysplasia by popping out hips and, and shoulders and elbows sometimes. By time and again, time and again, puppies falling and displaying out like that. Time and again, when they're in their apartments or in their homes, puppies chasing the ball on a rainy day and they're slipping and sliding down a hallway of, of you know, um, waxed wood floors without a runner or tile floors. They don't realize that a healthy puppy can end up with displeasure by their own fault. And they just don't realize it. Right. Or the puppy that, it's a big puppy, but they take a running leap and jump up on the sofa all the time. And then the big puppy jumps off the sofa because they, they think it's fun to just throw the ball and jump off and throw the ball and jump off. They don't realize that all the pounding up and down can break the puppy mm -hmm. until the growth play closes. Some breeds close at a year old or, or 15 months old. My shepherd closed at two years old. Well, she was almost two. Now, the PMs close at, at 
two years old or maybe even a little bit older. Every, every dog is different. I realize that every breed is different. But the bigger the dog, the bigger the breed, the longer it takes for it to close. Mm-hmm. So they have to be careful with each puppy. And that's why you, you can cause your own damage. So you get it from the breeder and they're perfectly healthy. And then seven months down the road of, of too much pounding or people that jog with your puppies. They take a, a, a lab at six months old, seven months old, but they like to jog. So they take the dog jogging. Wrong. Definitely. The pounding on the sidewalk. Mm-hmm. Pounding even on the beat. You know, you want to run your puppy, that's fine. So you walk the puppy up and down, but you don't run your puppy on the pavement. Oh, it's a long-legged, you know, you know, uh, Irish setter. You don't do that because all that pounding and pounding screws up the whole bone structure. People don't realize it. And they go back to the breeder and say, my puppy's broken. So, but yeah, so there are some things that a PM can be, you have to be watching for. Because the bigger the dog, there are some issues. But again, as we progress with modern technology and DNA testing, you breed to a dog that has less and less issues, to a dog that has less and less issues, and you have a better dog. That's what we're hoping to do. Well, I can only speak to myself. Um, we built a four by eight whelping box. Mm-hmm. Uh, on one side, it was the three foot by four foot side, we put the puppies. The five by three foot side, four foot side, we put mom. And when she was ready to nurse, we put the puppies in with her. I actually sat in the whelping box with her every time she nursed. <laughs> <laughs> I, I well, you know, it's a big dog, right? And um, I wanted to make sure that she didn't roll over on top of her puppies. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of instances where mom being so big, yeah, she can roll over on her puppies by accident, or she can stand up, and when she's done, you know, she's tired, she's done. I want out, you know. She can stand up and step on one of the puppies by accident, even if you're just sitting on a chair across the room watching her nurse, she can just all of a sudden stand up and by the time you run, you know, six, eight feet across the room, she could have already squished a puppy. I've heard these stories. So I'm just, you know, nervous enough that I literally sat in the whelping box every time she nursed and at the beginning it was five times a day. And so six or seven or eight hours a day, I was in the whelping box. (laughs) And so, um, my husband would pass the puppies over to me, and Katerina would be laying in with the puppies, and I would put each puppy on her, and she would nurse, and then she would clean them and with them, and I would be sitting in with her, and they would be climbing on her and nursing on her, and we'd sit there, and after they finished nursing, she'd clean them, and we'd be in there an extra so many times, and so about an hour and a half or so later, take the puppies and put them back on the other side over the the wall, if you will, under the heat lamp and their side where they could sleep and whatnot. And then um, I'd clean her up and I would rub some stuff on her so that she wouldn't be uh, all bitten, not really bitten, that she'd be red and sore because, you know, get nine puppies. And then um, she would get up and I would make sure that I, I counted noses, make sure there were nine on the other side, especially when they were really little. 
Then she would get up and she would go out to the kitchen and she'd get her drink and whatnot. And then she came right back into the room and she checked her on her puppies, stuck her nose on the other side, made sure everybody was okay. And then we kept a big crate in the bedroom right next to the whelping box so she could sleep right next to them, but not in the whelping box with them. That's how we did it. And um, then we put a um, an X pen over the top of the area where the puppies were, so that they could still get the heat from the lamp. But the grate of the of the X pen, if she decided to get out of her crate and take a peek, she couldn't get in with the puppies per se because we weren't going to be in the room. And then she slept in there with the puppies, and we would check and make sure everything was okay, and she could go in and out all she wanted, and everybody was safe. That way, there was no stepping of the puppies. And then, again, rinse and repeat the next four or five times. So basically, it started at, it was just an ongoing timing, because five times a day, so we basically did so-called the last feeding at two in the morning, and then the puppies, well, they basically fed every two to three hours. Mm-hmm. So... That's what we did. A lot of people uh, do whelping boxes and they leave mama in there and they just stay in the room with her and they just leave the puppies on all the time and then she cleans them and they just have somebody sleep in the room and they stay with mama all the time. And some people only take the puppies away if they have to actually leave the room or go out for errands or whatever. Uh, some people... Um, take them away like we do and you know just for safety purposes but I don't know uh, how else other, other folks do it I had no intentions of having puppies right off the bat anyway I was just gathering my foundation bitches and things like that and in fact I didn't even start out having my litter with my foundation bitches years ago right. it took me to 2000 when Pancho was here in, in 1997 and I brought in several other bitches and so on and so on. It took me to 2004 to find the bitch I wanted, and then she had to be two before I bred her. So it took me to 2006, actually, to have my first litter with Poncho. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because I really wanted, and I didn't have the DNA and all that other fancy stuff back then. But judging from... It was all on paper. You know, good old-fashioned, this one had this father, this one had that father and mother, and da 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 And my friend in Finland and I spoke on the phone because we didn't have Messenger back then where we could do an audio-visual thing. Right. <laughs> and she and I talked for lots of time on the phone, and she said, take this um, take this pedigree and this pedigree, and, we'll, and we walked through all the pedigrees on paper to make sure that I found the right match for Poncho. That's how long ago in by hand, an old-fashioned way. Mm-hmm. So it took me that long to find the right the right mate for Poncho. I prefer that they have their second birthday. Uh-huh. There's been discussion that 18 months is a better idea. I think that's a little young, immature for the female based on her growth plate hasn't closed yet and she hasn't been OSA certified yet so I think that there's a big controversy there so I think if she OSA certified her growth plate closed at two years old she's been certified so she's pregnant between two years and two and a half years I think that's a nice window right there 
I want them to change the world. 